This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. I'm happy to be here. I hope this will be of interest to the assembled multitudes. What I'm going to talk about is the parallel architecture in language and elsewhere. It's now been about 50 years that I've been gradually developing what I think is a unified theory of linguistic structure that I call the parallel architecture. I've worked out three major components in considerable detail. Uh, The first one is conceptual semantics, which I've written about in a number of books that culminate in foundations of language. The second component is called simpler syntax, which I developed with Peter Kulikover. And the most recent component is relational morphology, which I've worked out with Jenny Aldring and which appears in our fairly recent book, The Texture of the Lexicon. Before I describe the parallel architecture, I want to make clear what it's a theory of. It's intended as an account of the mental representations that are involved in the language faculty. Now, what do I mean by the term mental representations? Well, a useful way to think about them is that they're sort of data structures in the brain that collectively create our understanding of the world. Um, I take it as fundamental to the study of cognition that the brain has no direct access to what we think of as the real world out there. Rather, the brain has to construct the world as we understand it and experience it. And our repertoire of mental representations is what creates the dimensions in which this construction of reality takes place. And different organisms will have different repertoires of mental representations. So linguistic theory, as I practice it, is about the structure and organization of the mental representations that support language. Now, in addition, a theory of the mental representations for language should embed naturally into a psycholinguistic theory, which deals with how language production and language comprehension make use of these mental representations for language. And the theory should also make connections with the theory of language acquisition which is about how language learners construct the mental representations for language in the context of their environment. Now, very ideally going to really going for broke, all of this should be supported by eventually by a theory of neural computation, how the neurons actually encode mental representations and how they encode the processes that make use of the mental representations. Now, what do I mean by neural computation? I mean, not just where in the brain some linguistic process takes place in its time course that we are getting very good at measuring. Um, But I'm really interested in how the neurons do it. How do the speech sounds b and p differ in the brain? What makes one neural assembly the knowledge of the word dog and another assembly the word cat? How are dog and hot dog partly alike in the brain and partly different? And so on. I don't think we really know how to answer these questions yet, but I do think linguistic theory is important to neuroscience of language because it makes clear how complex linguistic phenomena are and therefore what an account of the neural instantiation of language is responsible for. Now, a crucial fact about language is that its mental representations are organized in multiple orthogonal dimensions or what have been called levels of representation. There are three major levels of representation for language, phonological or sound structure, syntactic or grammatical structure, 
and semantic or conceptual structure. And these levels are related to each other by interfaces, which I've indicated by the double-headed arrows. So a sentence is a triple of well-formed phonological, syntactic, and conceptual structures with well-formed links through the interfaces. And I've included, in fact, a direct link between phonology and semantics. Um, this will play a role in Ava Wittenberg's talk on the evolution of the language faculty. Now, it's important that the arrows in this diagram are bidirectional. So when you're hearing language, you're first constructing a phonological structure in response to the sound you've heard. Then you can think of activation going through the interfaces to the other levels. And this is what enables you to construct a syntactic structure and a meaning for what you're hearing. When you're producing language, you're starting with a meaning you want to convey, a conceptual structure, and then activation goes through the interfaces to construct a phonological structure or a sound that expresses that meaning. Exactly how that happens is a matter for psycholinguistic theory and experiment, and there's lots of that going on. But I want to concentrate on the nature of the structures that are being manipulated themselves. So let's start with the nature of words. Take the word cat. It's encoded in all three levels of representation. Its semantics is the concept of cat. Whatever that might be, we don't understand it very well yet. In syntax, it's encoded as a noun. And in phonology, it's encoded as the pronunciation cat. But there's more to the word than the three structures. What makes this the word cat rather than three random structures is the fact that, the, that they're linked um, as notated by the subscript one on each structure. So you can think of the subscripts as representing the ends of association links between the three structures. In other words, the subscripts are what make the word function as part of the interfaces. When you hear the sound cat, you activate the phonological structure, and then the co-subscript is what entitles you to activate the syntax and the meaning. When you want to express the concept of cats, you activate the semantic structure, capital letter cat, and that passes activation through the interface to the pronunciation. So let's look a little more deeply at what's involved in each level. The phonological structure of a word is made up of a concatenation of speech sounds, k, at, t. Um, but speech sounds in turn have internal structure that's called distinctive features. For example, t is a stopped sound. It contrasts with s, which is a continuant. In addition, t is unvoiced, contrasting with d. All of these are consonants, and they contrast with vowels like a and u and so on. And these features play a role in all manner of phonological phenomena that I don't have time for today. But in fact, you can describe all the phonological phenomena of English with about a dozen distinctive features. And all the phenomena of the languages of the world can be described with just a couple dozen. It seems to be working out that way. Again, the speech sounds that are made up of these features are units that combine with each other to form syllables and eventually words. And I should mention on the side that sign language gestures uh, show similar organization. Now let's turn to the syntactic structure of words. It includes parts of speech like noun and verb, which govern how words combine with each other into bigger phrases and sentences. Syntactic structure also involves inflection, such as plural or past tense markers in English. It also encompasses internal morphosyntactic structures like compounding, where you make an, a word like football out of two smaller nouns. And it includes derivational morphology, where a word like baker 
is composed out of the verb bake plus a suffix. And incomprehensibility is built out of a stem, comprehend plus a whole bunch of prefixes and suffixes. Now, the conceptual structure of words is complex. And like, like I said before, there's still lots to be learned about it. But it's clear that it's not simply the statistics of co-occurrence in a corpus. It has to form a basis for inference. For example, if you know something's a cat, you know it's an animate physical object of a certain size, it's a mammal, it's a domestic animal. And you can encode all this in a feature system like you can in phonology. Think about what it means for something to be a domestic an animal. Uh, there's no feature plus domestic animal, plus or minus domestic animal that it's contrasting with. It has to draw on your world knowledge of social practices, which can be pretty complicated. And in the end, it turns out to be very difficult, maybe impossible, to segregate knowledge of words from knowledge of the world. Now, in addition, there's another angle to the concept of cat. You have to be able to use the, the concept to identify cats in the world or use it to, to name pictures. This requires some sort of visually based representation. And in a minute, I'll talk about how that might work. But first, I want to talk about the mental representations of whole sentences. As I said before, they have to have structures in all the domains that interface with one another. So here's a sketch of the little sentence, Jenny bought a bike. It has representations on all three levels. The semantic says there's an event in the past of buying that involves two characters, an agent, the buyer, that's Jenny, and the patient or the thing that's being bought, that's a bike. Um, and because this is an event of buying and not just a matter of giving something to someone, it necessarily has two more characters that are not named, the seller, the person who the, is, the bike is coming from, and the money that's being exchanged. It wouldn't be buying unless there was both of those elements. And notice that the concept of money is another one of those complicated things that's embedded in social practices. Let's turn to the syntax now. I'm showing it here as a standard simple parse tree. So a sentence is made up of a noun phrase and a verb phrase. The verb phrase is made of a verb and a noun phrase. The noun for the, this noun phrase is made of a determiner and a noun. Nothing special. So moving on to the phonology, this encompasses three sublevels or tiers. Down the middle, here you see the, the segmental uh, makeup and the division into syllables. So we have je, ni, bot, uh, bike. Um, and above this is the stress grid, which assigns a weight to each syllable. So a syllable with one X above it is unstressed. That's ni, jenny, and bada, uh, is unstressed. If there are two X's, then it's a stressed syllable, jenny, bot, uh, bike. If there are three, then this is the main stress of the whole phrase, the whole sentence, that jenny bought a bike. That gets the main stress. Now, below this tier, um, is the intonation contour for the sentence, the tune that it's spoken to. Here I've encoded it as a sequence of high and low pitches that are associated with the syllables of the sentence. So it sounds like this, Jenny bought a bike. But that isn't all to the structure of the sentence. In addition, the levels of representation have to be linked in the fashion that's indicated by the subscripts. For, for example, capital letter Jenny up here, 
in the semantics as subscript two, that links it to the first noun phrase here in the sentence and to the pronunciation Jenny in the phonology. Similarly, the term bike in the semantics over here has subscript eight, and that connects it with the noun here in the syntax and with the phonology bike. So what you can see from this is that there's no single place where the words are fitted into the sentence. There's not a lexical level. Um, rather, the words are spread across the three levels, and they serve as part of the means by which the sounds are related to the meanings. So let me sum up where we are so far. The overall idea is that language is made up of these independent and somewhat orthogonal kinds of information, the three tiers of phonology plus syntax and conceptual structure. You can think of them influencing each other, constraining one another, or aligning with one another by way, in, in any case, by way of the interface links that I've notated as subscripts. And it's because of this independence of the levels of representation that the theory is called the parallel architecture. There are multiple levels of representation being computed at once. Uh, this contrasts with the outlook of standard issue, if you like Chomsky and generative grammar, where the driving force in language is syntax and phonology and semantics are derived from syntax. From where I sit after all these years, this traditional syntax-based view of language may have been attractive early on in modern linguistics, um, but I think it's proven to be a mistake, and it's a mistake that's driven a wedge between linguistics and the rest of cognitive science, because the theory of language doesn't fit in with anything else. Well, I don't won't dwell on that. I'd like to go back now to a very important issue I raised earlier. How do you set up the meaning of the word cat so you can use it to identify things in the environment? So you can, for example, point to something and say, that's a cat. More generally, how can we talk about what we see? And what can the parallel architecture offer that helps answer this question? Well, a preliminary answer is there has to be some sort of an informational conduit and interface in exactly our terms between language and the visual system. What's that going to be like? Well, it turns out that language has very rich ways of talking about the visual world. It's not just about categorizing objects. So that raises a, a, a further question. What sorts of information does the visual system need to generate? What can we see such that language can talk about it in all the rich ways that language does? And that sets a challenge for the theory of the visual system. So, for example, language refers to cats not in terms of collections of pixels, but in terms of object-centered three-dimensional descriptions that are independent of distance and point of view and lighting. That is all the classic visual constancies that go into the understanding of objects. So it includes understanding that objects have backs that you can't see, and they may be hollow like balloons or closed containers. Uh, the spatial context may occlude parts of an object or even a whole object like this picture I've get, I'm showing you here of a cat behind a bookcase. You can't see the cat, but you draw inferences about what you would see from a different point of view. And the object is understood as the same whether you're seeing it or not. This sort of understanding requires a level of representation that abstracts away from the momentary appearance to what you might call a more objective encoding of the way the world is taken to be. Um, I'll call this level spatial structure, and you might think of it as the highest level of representation in the visual system. And I imagine if it's the highest representation, there are probably other levels of 
visual representation between the V1-ish level and spatial structure at the other end. And there may be, may be roughly along the lines of Mars primal sketch and two and a half D sketch, or they might div divide the work up between complementary streams like the what system and the where system. As a linguist, that's not for me to say, that's for the visual people. But if you think about it, spatial structure can't be not can't just be a visual representation. You can derive the size and shape of objects and their spatial layout haptically through the sense of touch, feeling things, even with your eyes closed. Of course, you can't perceive an object's color by touching it, but on the other hand, you can perceive its temperature haptically, though not visually. In addition, we have a third source of information that's proprioception that's telling you about the position and orientation of one very special object in the spatial environment, namely your whole body. And all three of these, vision and hapsis and proprioception, have to be correlated to each other in order to understand what's going on in physical space. And I take it that this is what the job of spatial structure is. And I should add that spatial structure isn't just for perceiving, it also has to be used to plan action in the world. How does this hook up to language? Well, there has to be a partial correspondence, an interface between spatial structure and conceptual structure. So for example, the mental representation of the word cat includes not just phonological and syntactic and conceptual structure, but also linked to them, a piece of spatial structure that encodes what cats look like. And this connection is what enables us to identify cats in the physical environment, and more generally, what enables us to talk about what we see. What sorts of things do we talk about that have to be present in spatial structure? Well, we have to be able to identify parts of objects like the cat's head and eyes and ears and legs and tail. We have to be able to perceive what might be called negative objects, things that have size and shape, but they're empty, things like holes, cracks, dents, mouths and nostrils too. Um, we have to identify actions like running and jumping and throwing and climbing and falling and sliding and on and on we go. And there's also more abstract sorts of entities like ends, where we talk about the end of a rope, the end of a table, or the end of a road, or even the end of a lecture or a movie. Um, so end doesn't just refer to some spatial object. It has all kinds of different ramifications. So in short, there are hundreds and hundreds of things we have words for that spatial representation has to identify. So here's a sketch of the architecture of the whole system. On the top, here you can recognize, here's the parallel architecture for language, phonology, syntax, and conceptual structure. On the phonological end here, right, it's connected to um, auditory signals, feed phonology for language on uh, comprehension, and phonology feeds vocal track instructions um, for language production. So that's on the phonological end. On the conceptual end, uh, it's connected to spatial structure, as we've just seen, which is in turn connected to the perceptual system, vision, hapsis, proprioception, and to action planning here. In other words, as a whole, we find a collection of distinct levels of representation linked by interface principles. So to talk about what we see, we are going to see something via retinal input and go through some bunch of levels to the visual surface, which is sort of the um, just the, the output of perception, let's say. 
that will feed spatial structure, that'll go conceptual structure and then out through language. And that, that's how we're talking about what we see. Um, just for fun, now suppose we delete language from this diagram, in particular phonology and syntax. So we get this. I think we get a plausible architecture now for primate minds. They likely understand the physical world in much the same way as we do. Certainly involves visual and haptic and proprioceptive information and the creation of ac action plans. And there are conceivably other routes to spatial representation, like echolocation in bats and dolphins. So I think there are also good arguments that non-human primates and other social mammals have a counterpart of conceptual structure, though probably not as rich as ours. And of course, they can't talk about it because they don't have the missing levels. Let's put them back like we can. So for a parting shot, let me mention one more mental system that can be described in terms of the parallel architecture, and that's music. Uh, here's a little fragment of music from the Beatles. I once had a girl, or should I say, she once had me. I don't have time to explain this whole thing, but you can see that there are four kinds of notation that represent four kinds of musical structure. Down the middle, we have standard musical notation that gives us the sequence of notes, the pitches and durations of the notes. Below it is the grouping structure, which is a hierarchical articulation of the music in terms of motives and phrases. I once had a girl, or should I say, she once had me. Or I once had a girl, or should I say, well, she once had me. Or the whole thing can be a group. Above the notes is a configuration of X's uh, that represents the hierarchical metrical structure of strong and weak beats. And this looks sort of like the, the uh, stress structure in language, and that's a correct guess if you had guessed it. And above that is this tree structure that represents the music in terms of relative structural importance versus or ornamental character. And it also encodes the, the patterns of tension and relaxation in the music. I don't have time now to tell you more about it. The main takeaway is that music too is organized in terms of independent levels of representation that collaborate through interfaces. So let me sum up. All these structures and the links between them are necessary in order to describe language the understanding of physical space, and music. Uh, this sets a major challenge to cognitive neuroscience. How are all these structures created and stored and processed by the brain? And I submit that at present, virtually nothing is known about how the brain does that in detail. And outside of language and maybe music, we don't even know much about the character of the representations. So I want to close by insisting that the theory of mental representations sets important boundary conditions on what the brain has to be able to do. And this sets up big opportunities, looking on the positive side, big opportunities for collaboration across disciplinary boundaries. So thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.